locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, June. Yeah, it's still June, (laughs) June 22nd, 21st. I don't know what day it is. It's sometime in June of the year 2023. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton here to talk about something. I'm I'm all over the place tonight. Hammy, hopefully your day is going better. You look a lot more composed to me. I was I've been sitting here trying to, you know, just to get the show going. I thought I was I was all ready to go, but apparently not. We're Help a little me. bit frazzled. So <laughs> the the podcast tonight is the equivalent of your team's driver crashing and qualifying and the team mechanics desperately trying to put the car back together with the minute ticking down before the formation lap. That was our show. You were having technical issues. I was having technical issues. But that said, we're we're here, my friend, and you're back. Uh, very happy, belated, happy Father's Day. I hope you had you a as great well. day with your kids. Was it good? It was. It was. It was really nice. So we're actually going to do like the the proper Father's Day dinner this weekend, just so we can get all the dads in our family together at one time. What is but a Father's Day dinner. What is that? Well, we get together. We have dinner uh, for oh. Father's Day. <laughs> okay. So I, I don't know. know. We'll, we'll probably know. like yeah. Everybody will. It's it's kind of like a potluck kind of dealy, or maybe we'll order in some food or something like that. But it's just kind of we get the cool. larger family together for an evening and. You know, it's a, my, my wife's family. It's like any excuse to get together for a big family do for it doesn't matter it. what it is, is like it. any reason to to get together and eat and drink and celebrate and and all that uh, great stuff. So looking so forward to here's that. what you've missed since we were last together. OK, so on Saturday and for those of you that haven't had a chance to check it out, we had Magnus Greaves, co-founder and publisher of Race Weekend on. He came in to announce that Collection 1 is done. Collection 2 is in the process of being printed and sent to the printers. We also had a really great chat about the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Sunday was the Canadian Grand Prix and I cannot wait because you and I didn't get the chance to talk about it on Sunday. I'm dying, dying to talk to you a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to quickly bring forward a couple of other real cool reminders. So Sam Cooper is going to be joining me on Sunday for our Sunday show. If you got some questions for Sam, get those in. You can slide them into our DM or we've got a Twitter post that you can respond to with your questions. We have confirmed Mr. Mac Clark. Mr. Mac Clark will be joining us on July 8th. And I also confirmed with Megan Gilks today. So Megan Gilks is busy. She's at Zandvoort this weekend for F1 Academy. She has confirmed she'll be coming on for a date to be determined in August. So she'll be coming on during the F1 break, which of course is useful for her because she's competing in the F1 Academy series. She is an in Turn for a Formula One team. She is very, very busy. And then finally, we actually have somebody from the video game industry that will possibly be joining us in the next couple of weeks to talk about EA Sports F1 2023, how it stacks up versus its predecessors, what makes it cool, talk about the evolution of the game. Of course, it was originally a Codemasters franchise and Codemasters <laughs> got gobbled up by local behemoth Electronic Arts. So we'll, we'll talk about that and it's something I think people have been asking about quite a bit. But I wanted to make sure we got some of those laundry items out of the way before we got started. Just a question now. So I know every time Mac comes on the show, it's like the return of the Mac. So this is like the return of the return of the return of the return of the Mac or something. I mean, the he's Mac pretty much a regular. Back. Yeah, yeah. Revenge of the Mac. I don't know. <laughs> he's he's been a regular here. He's he's definitely been in, inducted into the the Ring of Honor long, oh, yeah, long, definitely. long ago. Definitely. Yeah, 100%. We've sent him the gold plated mic. We owe <laughs> Matt Sakaris a gold plated mic. We owe Mac a gold plated mic. 
Tim doesn't get one because he's got his own gig going. He's kind of he's kind of wink wink nudge nudge a bit of a competitor. Who else gets one? I feel like we, we're missing some people. Well, our yeah, friend, well, our friend in Brooklyn, of course, uh, Seth Whiteberg yes. would get one. Uh, but yeah, of course, that's maybe, yeah, Seth, that's about 100%. all the golden mics so far. Yeah, you, you know, you want to like you want to be generous, but you don't want to like you know you got to like set the bar sufficiently high enough that you know like that you know like and all our guests have been amazing. I don't don't get me wrong, but you know you, you just have to have that extra special something to get a a, a golden mic. Okay, which, we're derailing. Let's get back yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that. Let's uh, let's bring it back on track here, uh, despite the technical issues we had a little bit earlier. So let's just uh, quickly um, go over the standings in the World Championship. So on the driver's side. We have Max Verstappen, 195 points. Sergio Perez, 126. Fernando Alonso, 117. Lewis Hamilton, fourth with 102. And then Carlos Sainz, 100, uh, sorry, 68 points in fifth place. You know, that kind of like uh, really kind of caught me off guard there because everybody's 100 something, 100 something, 100 something. Carlos is like, you know, like <laughs> quite a ways back behind Lewis. Anyways, moving over to the constructor side on top, we have Red Bull, 321 points. Mercedes second with 167. Aston Martin, 154. Ferrari is fourth with 122, and then Alpine, fifth with 44 points. Do I dare ask you about the Fantasy League? Don't, before you answer, I'll give you an opportunity to pull it up and let it load properly. Oh, it, it is rarely... loaded. It is loaded. Wow. My awesome. browser will likely crash as I pivot my eyes towards it. <laughs> Safari, don't do me dirty, but let's get started. So we went through this on Sunday because the updated standings were available. So number one, L1F1. No change. Nathan's team, no change. Ole's lane is no change. Bengals, Bubs, no change. Up to fifth. Buenos Dias, up to sixth. No does, up to seven. FC Racing, number three. Slipping to number eight. Fire Ferrets, up to nine. Cranger, up to 10. My, my, my. Oh, oh, oh. Up to 11. CDP Racing, up to 11. Also, Dream Saturday, slotting in at number 13. And that's an improvement. It's our friend Yuki's Farts 2023. Down to 14 is Jesse H. And up into the 15 spot, Archduke. Ferdinando. <laughs> I love the historic play on words there. Not quite as good as Yuki's farts, which is kind of like crude and in your face, but still amusing, uh, you know, for all the obvious reasons. But uh, cool. Awesome. Good work, everyone. Um, before we jump into the rest of things, just want to give a real quick shout out to Racing Ex Exclusives, pardon me.com, RacingExclusives.com. And big shout out to, to Tease and the crew for providing us with that autograph Max Verstappen one half scale helmet that uh, one of the winners or the winner from our F1 fantasy league will uh, you know take home uh, this year so um, you know big props and thanks to them and of course they have one of a kind and unique f1 merch that comes with a coa a certificate of authenticity so definitely go and check them out racing exclusive exclusives.com so let's uh, pull up the uh, couple of graphics that uh, that you've got here pull the win conversion rates love this one so for active drivers Max Verstappen, 29 poles, sorry, 25 poles and 20 wins. That gives him a conversion rate of 80%. Fernando, 14, sorry, 22 poles, 14 wins for that puts him in at 63.64%. Lewis, 103 poles, 61 wins, 59.22%. Carlos Sainz, three poles, one win, 33.33%. Sergio, the same thing, three poles, one win, 33.33%. And then it kind of goes down from there. There's only a couple other like active drivers that have, um, 
pulls and win that includes uh, Valtteri Bottas has 20 pulls six wins Charles Leclerc 19 pulls four wins and then Nico Hulkenberg and Lance Stroll Lando Norris George Russell and Kevin Magnussen all have one pole position each and no win to show for it and poor old Nico Hulkenberg despite having something you know several million Grand Prix under his belt in his long and distinguished career is yet to actually get even on the podium which is absolutely uh crazy when you think about it and then the 100 club all-time wins ferrari 242 race victories mclaren 183 mercedes 125 williams 114 and red bull 100 my goodness like <laughs> when you look at that you know the I mean, Ferrari, McLaren, Mercedes, Red Bull, those seem like obvious ones. But Williams, I mean, they've been stuck on that. I mean, that that stat for the longest time, they only padded it by one only just what was just over a decade ago ago when uh, Maldonado won that, uh, you know, shockingly won the Spanish Grand Prix in uh, unexpected uh, circumstances. But wow, when I, I can't even think when they would have had some more wins would that have gone back to like the montoya ralph schumacher days in the early 2000s it probably would have right and it's not like those two guys were racking up uh, tons of uh w's or victories in uh, at that time but uh interesting okay just uh, another one just want to um give a shout out to js nads or jay snads in australia for leaving a five-star rating and a review on apple podcasts and the review was i've only recently recently discovered this podcast but i think it's great these are too passionate about all things F1 and are well-informed. I don't miss an episode now. Well done. So cheers for that. And thank you to one and all for the ratings and reviews on iTunes, on Spotify. I, I've, I've kind of lost count on Spotify. We're doing, you know, getting a lot of love on Spotify. So we really uh, appreciate that. So, Mark, before we jump into the news of the week, let's just uh, circle back um, because, you know, we didn't do the show together on Sunday night, but you did a great job to recap the Canadian Grand Prix on your own. Um, just a couple of interesting stats here. So the three-day attendance for the Canadian Grand Prix, 345,000 people there at Circuit Gilles Villeneuve and Ile Notre-Dame in downtown Montreal. Beautiful venue, beautiful circuit, and big numbers it it was great to see. I mean, the Canadian Grand Prix is usually very, very well attended, but it just looked like people were packed in anywhere where there was space to watch this race over the course of the, the, the three days for practice, qualifying the race itself. That was great to see. Unfortunately, during the race itself, there were only 20 overtakes, which is the lowest amount of overtaking that we've seen during the season thus far. Mark, <laughs> we, we haven't talked about this, so let's pick it up right there. I'm actually still buzzing a little bit about the race from from sat from Saturday from Sunday, and and it's it's I'm, not gonna, I'm struggling to articulate myself because I think for the first time since probably Bahrain I I have a little bit of optimism about what this season may hold and especially about what 2024 and 2025 can hold and I think the Red Bull domination has been so so in your face this year that it's been hard to be optimistic about any outcome other than a Max Verstappen or as we experienced earlier in the season a Sergio Perez Grand Prix race victory and that said the Red Bull win streak 
continued. It was extended to Montreal, as we really all expected that it would be. Max obviously was thrilling, fantastic, brilliant in qualifying and wet conditions, scored a much well-deserved pole, and he ran away with this race victory. And I think, though, the, the big takeaways for me were this. One, the Aston Martin upgrades were phenomenal. And, and you know what? Fernando Alonso promised they were going to be great. And he said, quote, unquote, we are going to crush the competition. And he finished with a thrilling P2. The Mercedes, especially Lewis Hamilton, because he managed to keep his car on the track and did DNF like his teammate. The Mercedes looks phenomenal and the upgrades seem to be full value. And I think we were a little bit skeptical because we're like, you know what? Spain's not really a great sample. This is a track where Mercedes is always really successful. And they went into Montreal, which is a very different type of circuit. And they were equally as good. And then on top of that, we had a hugely surprising Ferrari finish that both Ferrari cars finished well within the points, despite the fact that they both qualified very poorly. And there were some strategy issues and some internal politicking on the Ferrari side that led to that. But they had a great strategy call during the Grand Prix and the cars looked fantastic. And I think part of the reason why the Ferraris looked so good was the temperatures were cooler. It's not necessarily a high deg circuit. So they managed to keep they managed to keep life in those tires a little bit longer. I think it was a sunny hot day the, the result for the Ferraris would have been so great. But still, I come out of this race with a tremendous amount of optimism. The Astons looked great. The Mercedes looked great. And the Ferraris looked surprisingly pacey. And I think even Helmut Marco, we have an article here from Helmut Marco that he revealed and he said, quote unquote, the Ferraris were the fastest on both compounds because of course the Ferraris ran on a hard and they ran on a medium, but that's high praise from Helmut Marco. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic coming out of this race weekend and the race was fine. It wasn't great. I mean, it was really cool to see Lewis go aggressively at his his former teammate, Fernando Alonso, early and get that position. It was great to see Fernando come back and get that position back again. It was really great to see Ferrari take that one-stop strategy and the fact that they managed to stretch out that first stint long enough that they were able to pit and keep their positions. That was pretty cool. Um, Likewise, it was interesting to see Sergio Perez continue to struggle, although he managed to make it up to P6. Lance... P9, not a great day. He managed to nip Valtteri Bottas at the very end, revenge for Baku in 2017. But there was a lot of things that I thought were positive about this. And I want to get into a couple of the stories. But that said, you and I haven't talked about it. And I'm excited coming out of Canada. How are you feeling? Where are you emotionally after that race? Yeah, I, I think you nailed all those points um, exactly the way that I saw it as well, that we, we've been sitting here since the middle of March. It's like, oh my God, you know, Max is going to run away with this one. Sergio is going to come home P2 in all these races, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be Red Bull beating up on everybody all season long. So, I mean, obviously Max won again, and but where it gets interesting is Fernando was only nine and a half seconds behind. And before you say, well, yeah, but that's nine and a half seconds. That's a really big delta, the big difference between you know P one and P two. But let's not forget that uh, Fernando had this uh, you know lift order, uh, you know, throughout uh, a good portion of the second half of the the, the race to lift and coast, right? Which uh, you know turned out to, to be an apparent problem with the fuel system. Turned out it was a bit of a bogus, uh, you know, it, it was a false indicator. So he actually didn't have the problem, but. It was interesting because, uh, you know, there was obviously 
that brought him a little bit closer to to Lewis because he wasn't able to push the car as much as he wanted to. And I was thinking, okay, so Fernando had to lift and coast for a good portion of the race. If he didn't have to, what would have been that difference between himself and Max by the end of the race? Because I'm not convinced that that Max would have run off into the distance you know, had Fernando been able to to drive that car the way that uh, he wanted to. But also the, the, the upgrades, like you say, on uh, Mercedes, they seem to be legit. You know, we, we've had two races on them, uh, you know, with these uh, with, with these upgrades. And like you say, Spain is a very, very good track for Mercedes uh, historically. So I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe we're going to kind of go back to more of the same, but I think they looked uh, really good. Unfortunately for George, he had that moment, which I thought he, he, he could have owned that a little bit better because he kind of pushed put that down to um you know the way that his car was set up but in the same way when and i don't have he the quote handy that, from man. i totally did. agree with you that that was an egregious driver error and ultimately yeah. he'd been the car i still and i said this on the show on saturday like i can't on sunday i cannot believe he got it back to the pits i cannot believe that it wasn't an instant dnf that the 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 force with which he hit that wall and the angle was such that I can't believe that the rear suspension just didn't crumple. But he needs to own that. He he cost yep. his team a ton of points. That would have been you would have had two Mercedes in the top five, and and you didn't. And this year he just and I'm going to start campaigning on this because now more than earlier in the season he has a really really great weapon out there on the track in that W14, and he's not been good enough this year. And Lewis is significantly better than George has been, and I thought that was an egregious driver mistake. And totally agree with you he needed to own that yeah because it was a weird quote because uh, you know he starts off uh, by saying that uh, you know he he left his braking too late going into that corner but then he kind of like then he kind of changes tack on that and basically blames you know that whole incident on the way that the car was set up but i mean he said right out of the shoot that you know it was his fault for for braking he hit too a curb like, Come on, he hit a curb yeah. with too much speed it was a driver yeah. error 100 percent, 100 percent, man yeah, but you know it was good. You know, just like like you say to when you compare George to Lewis, I thought it was great to see Lewis scrapping the way that he did with uh, with, with Fernando. I think obviously had Fernando not had that uh, that that lift and coast thing, I don't think Lewis would have been as close. But definitely, Aston's closed the gap to Red Bull. Mercedes is closing the gap. Ferrari's closing the gap. So now it gets really interesting because, you know, there, there's other storylines to talk about because Sergio Perez now has had several real stinkers of races, you know, going back to to, to, to Monaco. I mean, it's like he's completely, I, I don't know what sort of headspace he's in right now, but it's like something happened in, in Monaco during the course of that weekend and he's completely lost his mojo. It's just nothing's going right for for him at, at at the moment and then you know then you look at uh, so so he's obviously dropping points for the team and then you're saying that George has dropped points for, for uh, Mercedes but you know somehow they're, they're still managed to cobble enough points together to now move up to second in the uh, the constructors uh, championship which must be infuriating for Lawrence Stroll because Lance I mean he's had a couple he hasn't really had a great season period and all the amount of points that uh, that he's left out on the track that he hasn't been able to bring home where Fernando, I mean, he's been bringing home podiums and, you know, really solid finishes right from the very start of the season. So, you know, I, I guess to sort of wrap this one up and, you know, you were just saying, okay, well, 
you know, so or we're both kind of talking about it actually that uh, that that Max is still winning the races. But the one thing is that 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 not only does he have a great car with a great engine in the back, he's been driving absolutely perfectly, and he's been doing it week in week out. I mean, I. You know, I kind of struggle to think. I mean, he has made some mistakes here and there, but I mean, he's literally been flawless now going on for what, two years? It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible, Mark. Yeah, I totally agree. I would caution, and as excited as I am about the progress of Aston Martin and Mercedes, and I'm more skeptical about Ferrari, but it's great to see both of them scoring really strong points finishes. I I think we should be a little bit cautious about that delta between P1 and P2 being sub-10 seconds, because let's be realistic. I, I think if Max wanted to, if he needed to, he could have put some more space between him and the P2 finisher. And I think it was pretty clear to him because obviously they can intercept a lot of the Aston Martin radio messages. Um, it was pretty obvious to him what the orders were to Fernando. And he knew Fernando wasn't chasing him. And he knew that Lewis probably wasn't going to get by him. And additionally, uh, as we discovered post-race, <laughs> although Verstappen said on the radio, and I think his team denied it, that a bird was entangled within his car, within the brake. So, <laughs> so very fortunate yeah. he didn't have an uh, a messy a messy DNF as a result. But all of that is said, um, I still think that that delta is narrowing, and it's narrowing for a bunch of reasons. One is which I think that some of the penalties associated with the cost cap are starting to bite Red Bull. That I think a lot of the car and the upgrades that they brought earlier in the year were in the pipeline, maybe even as far back as last year. And I think that pipeline is going to start running a little bit dry because they're probably getting near the cap and because all of their CFD and their wind tunnel time is gone. And if you're Aston Martin and you had a really bad finish last year relative to where you and I thought they were going to be, they still have Mm -hmm. a lot of CFD CPU cycles available and they still have a ton of wind tunnel time. So their upgrades are still going to keep coming at a fairly rapid pace. And I think that's really good news for all of the F1 fans. Now, a couple of things that I did want to speak to because I didn't get necessarily into the weeds last weekend. I think I talked about the fact that the Williams car brought some really great upgrades and Aston Martin brought in a new engine cover and a new floor body and some new circuit specific cooling grills. But there was an article and I want to make sure I hit this real quick while we're just talking about the Canadian Grand Prix and wrapping it up. But there was the Tech Tuesday article on F1.com written by Mark Hughes. And it gets a little bit into the primary visual upgrade that Aston Martin brought to Canada. Um, And it says this, the AMR 23 side pod arrangement with his deep water slide channel on his upper surface was already very distinctive. The new bodywork retains the same basic layout, but with enhanced undercut in the front lower edges of the side pods, while the water slide feature has been narrowed and deepened. The undercut and water slide work in unison in accelerating the airflow towards the rear of the car. The two airflows merge to create a more powerful stream of air directed between the rear wheels where it flows over and around the walls of the diffuser, increasing the performance of the underfloor. As the airflow from the undercut makes its way there, it passes the various cutouts along the floor's edges, which triggers vortices, helping to seal the floor. The undercut creates a lower air pressure behind which the oncoming air rushes to fill. Anything enhancing that pressure difference, such as exaggerating the undercut, will be deemed desirable. Similarly, narrowing and deepening the water slide on the side pod's upper surface will energize that flow. Aston Martin's technical director, Dan Fallows, accepted that the side pod alterations were a big visual change, but he was playing down its significance, saying physical 
physically. It's a very big update, but there are things less visible we've done to the car before now, which are also quite significant. And he finally, and I'm just going to wrap this up real quick. Um, we are trying to put consistent development on the car rather than wait for a few races, then have a big update. This is not necessarily the biggest update we've put on the car in terms of performance. The side pods are flow tuning features, conditioning the airflow to the rear of the car, but it also helps the floor to work as well. The philosophy we've adopted, which we are seeing being adopted across the grid is something which helps this concept of floor to work as well in itself. Maybe the actual performance increase of the bodywork on its own is not all that much, but it helps everything else work in tandem. So very, very impressive stuff from Aston Martin. And I'll conclude this thought, Mark, and I know I've been rambling for a couple of minutes with a really startling story I saw being reported from AMUS earlier today, which is, of course, the German motorsport publication. Um, they indicate that they have it on pretty good authority that in the Aston Martin simulator back at Silverstone, the version of the AMR23 with the forthcoming upgrades is lapping within a few tenths of a second of the current Red Bull variant. So based wow. on their simulator work, that wow. that car they can bring out is going to be within a few tenths of a second. Now, simulators themselves can be very... They can be very sensitive because, of course, the only data that they have to enable them to emulate the Red Bull in the simulator is what they're seeing on track and the data that they're able to collect from more commonly available sources. But that said, everything that Red Bull has stated they're seeing in the simulator this year has transpired on track. So their experiences in the simulator are what they're experiencing once they get that car and once they get the upgrades onto the track. So this is really, really good news. And if I'm Red Bull, maybe I'm not so worried about the championship being under threat this year, but it opens up the possibility that next year in 25 could be really, really exciting. Well, that's what we're all all hoping for, right? Is that um, that there's going to be more competition for the not just the championship, but to race in, race out as well. But that would be fascinating to see whether or not uh, that 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 data that they have out of their sim, whether that pans out at the at the next race and beyond. So definitely, we're going to have to keep an eye on that. All right, let's take a really quick break. When we come back, just a couple of other things just to uh, tidy up uh, about the Canadian Grand Prix. We'll do that in a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
All right, welcome back to the show. So uh, next item up, uh, just uh, some you know little bits of odds and ends and uh, news pieces from uh, last weekend's Canadian Grand Prix. So apparently uh, Charles Leclerc uh, you know, ruffled some feathers with the, the Villeneuve family because he had a tribute helmet to, to the late Gilles Villeneuve. And uh, that was something that he didn't clear with the family uh, beforehand to let them know that they were doing that. So Jacques Villeneuve, uh, obviously, um, you know, former Formula One driver and also a former world champion, uh, gave uh, Charles a, a call afterwards uh, when, when he found out after he got a phone call from his sister. So uh, Jacques' sister, who uh, manages uh, anything to do with uh, their their father and their his legacy, and uh, said that she had not heard anything about it. So he felt that uh, even though this uh, became a little bit of a controversy over the weekend, it was overblown a little bit because, um, you know, Charles did not mean any disrespect and anything like that. Uh, he, it was more that the, the family was taken uh, uh, by surprise, and uh, they had a good conversation about that, and he did uh, reach out to, to uh, Jacques' uh, sister and uh, the rest of the family afterwards, as far as I can tell. Um, okay, the next one. So, McLaren team principal Andrea Stella feels that uh, Lando Norris was uh, targeted a little bit unfairly for that five-second uh, penalty that he got for, what was it, unsportsmanlike conduct. And you know, I, I thought for a moment that, and I guess this is the perfect venue for an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty in Formula One should, uh, you know, be in, you know introduced if that's going to be a thing, because that sounds very much like an ice hockey term. So Montreal and the Montreal Canadians have won, what, 26 Stanley Cups or whatever it is. But in terms of Formula One, that was a bit of a strange one. So he was given the penalty for backing up uh, behind, uh, you know, or backing up the field after that, um, you know, the safety car after George uh, put his, uh, you know, his car into the wall there. And uh, so the, the whole point of that was to, you know, give himself a bit of space or the team a little bit space so they could, uh, you know, double stack him and uh, Oscar Piastri. Um, but, uh, you know, Andrea Stella believes that uh, the stewards might be wanting to, you know, not really promote this kind of uh, behavior going forward. Um, Mark, what, what did you make of that um, incident? I, th I think it's fair if it becomes like, if, if it's a safety issue, but uh, I just thought the term unsportsmanlike conduct, the way that uh, they kind of framed it was rather unique. Let's yeah, put it that I, way. I agree. And I don't have a lot to add on this one. I, I think if you go back to the footage, it's probably not an egregious call. I just, I hope that the stewards can be consistent with this. And that's going to be tough because you have this rotating group and not even a rotating group, but you have this very transient group of stewards. But I, I hope that the FIA can make sure that, hey, if we're going to make start calling that, um, we just need to make sure we do it on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, that said, I know we've got to get to some listener emails, but I'm dying to get to the next topic. Can I talk about the Daniel Ricardo topic? Yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to go next because I wanted to oh. talk to, uh, about this okay, one too with first. you. So. Did you see it? Did no, you see it? No, oh. I, I did watch some of it. Oh, dude, it was it was pretty cringe. It, it was, was pretty cringe. Unwatched. So what we're talking about, of course, is that ESPN two I think did an alternate feed of the race with Daniel Ricardo eight times Grand Prix race winner currently working for the Red Bull team, previously of the Red Bull team, he sat down and not even in the same place, which is something I was kind of surprised about. Like I assume they at least both be physically in the same space yeah, for the session. Yeah, exactly. But they sat down in two different places, watched the race and lent their, their own commentary. And it was just garbage, man. 
absolute garbage. I, I think, and it's so funny, like you and I joked last week about the fact that Will Arnett did this F1 podcast last year, which was a total bust, despite the fact that they had the privilege of advertising on this podcast, but it was a total <laughs> bust. It wasn't, it wasn't worth listening to. It was terrible. And I think a lot of us were very skeptical about having this Manning cast style um, F1 event. And I think some of us, at least me, like, can Daniel Ricardo carry this for an hour and a half? Like, he's his tenor could be good, and he's definitely got the expertise to talk about the technical side of the sport, but there was zero chemistry. Will Arnett clearly is not a subject matter expert when it comes to the sport, and I don't think he's charismatic enough, at least from a sports commentary perspective, to carry a race for an hour and a half. Like, I just, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care that you like F1. I don't care. Why are you here? Daniel Ricardo, you could do better. It was it was terrible, absolutely terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I totally know what they were trying to do, like like a sort of an F one version of the Manning cast. But the thing is, you know, there's only one Peyton, one Eli Manning, and what they have is kind of unique. The chemistry that they have, their their their, their charisma, their character, just in general it lends itself perfect to doing that sort of thing. So yeah, it was just, um, it, I mean, to say it fell flat on, on all fronts <laughs> is a bit of an understatement, but hopefully that's uh, something that, why do you, uh, why you, do know, you think they, they keep, and by they, I mean all these different media organizations, like why do they keep thrusting Will Arnett on us in the F1 space? Like, I, I don't, if, much- I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I I think it um, you know personally, I think it just kind of goes back to the whole sort of you know the whole celebrities in Formula One, and it, we, we've talked about it before that that seems that you know like Tom Cruise is always at Silverstone in the Mercedes garage and things like that, you know, and stuff like that, and you know, and and I know what was it was it Neymar was at the the what was he at the Spanish Grand Prix a couple of weeks ago, and yeah, it's it's kind of cool, but. I'm I'm not tuning in on a Sunday to to see which global sports icon or which Hollywood actor or whoever is is there. I mean, I'm there to watch Lewis. I'm there to watch Max. I'm there to watch Charles. I'm I, I'm there for the racing. I, I I'm here for the racing. That's what what it's all about. And all that other stuff to me is like is just it's. It's irrelevant noise, essentially. And and I'm not saying don't make a big deal out of like a race weekend and the production. Make it the best show that you can. It's just like I don't know that I need to see like Hollywood celebrities and 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 soccer players and you know, whoever it might be also doing a grid walk or or rappers or other musicians. You know, to me it's just like Okay, cool. Whatever. <laughs> it's just like I, I, I don't really care. Mark, I'm going to put <laughs> you on the thing. spot, and I like Will sure. Arnett. I'm a huge Arrested Development fan. What Yo, was same, the last? What too. was the last thing he did? Well, d- hasn't he done that Lego Masters show on Fox the last couple of years? That reality show. Yeah, he's he's been doing that, but like as far as like um, other things, I'm not really too sure. And and I'm the last person to ask about it. They, no, like, and, and, and I, I, news, I was so. asking you yeah. not not out of principle, but because I would assume yep. that hey, if he's going to get this level of exposure and be introduced to do a Manning cast for a Formula One race, like at least he should be in the public conscious. And I don't think he really is. Like people are aware of who he is and that he's a comedian, but he doesn't have yep. much yep. gravitas beyond that. Anyways, I think we spent more than enough time talking about the disaster <laughs> that was the the Will Arnett, Daniel Ricardo broadcast. 
Yeah. Okay. So let, let's move along then. Okay. So why don't we uh, we talk now a little bit more about the uh, the, the Mercedes upgrades? So Total Wolf said, uh, well, basically said the updates work. So <laughs> there we go. So anyways, um, let's uh, read the quote. And this comes from a Crash.net article is uh, titled, um, where is it now? Relief for Mercedes fans as Total Wolf declares, quote, the update works after Canada. And this was written by uh, Connor McDonough. Um, anyways, the quote from the Toto is as follows, quote, the update works. That was the track where we were most worried that if the car was not fast at the beginning of the year, we would have driven uh, into the ground at such a track. Uh, we are there, uh, perhaps a tenth slower than Alonso, who brought a mega update uh, and, all, and not so far away from Max, another huge step forward. <clears throat> let's see and then he goes on to say uh, for us we didn't expect to perform in Canada because the car's DNA at the moment so for, uh, or because of the car's DNA at the moment pardon me so it's encouraging to be not so far away end quote so I think we should maybe just talk a little bit more about it I don't know if we need to uh, dive too in you know too deeply into it since we we talked about a little bit in the previous uh, segment but when you hear those uh, words uh, from from the, the the man himself Mercedes team principal Toto Wolf uh you know, the thing is, whatever I hear Toto, I don't discard a lot of what he says because I feel that he's like a very... I, I don't feel like a lot of the, the comments that he makes are kind of like throwaway comments. I, I think that, you know, most of the things he says are pretty measured and pretty accurate. And he says what he says on purpose compared to other people, other team principals up and down pit lane that sometimes will just say almost anything. <laughs> And sometimes, you know, just to to, to get a reaction, you know, no, not naming anybody in particular, but I think this is a you know an interesting little snippet from from Toto Mark. Yeah, definitely. And I think we should probably circle back because it's a good reminder and a good refresher for all of us because Monaco now is three Grand Prix away. But going into the Monaco Grand Prix, uh, the Mercedes team brought some not insignificant upgrades, including obviously the elimination of the zero pods, introducing more conventional side pods. And they did that not because they necessarily believed that they were going to be better, but because of all the changes they were making, they had to they had to isolate and confirm with real world data that the zero pods weren't working. And clearly the zero pods weren't working because they've stuck with the more traditional conventional side pod design. They also brought in new front suspension and a completely new floor. And the new floor is a huge, huge update, even though we don't see it. But I wanted to comment real quickly on the suspension because we had a bunch of people reach out and ask me about the suspension. I'm like, hey, what's different about the suspension? Why is this so important? And, and it's interesting because... When you look at the relevance of the suspension on the car and the fact that it's very much a mechanical component, you'd be surprised at how little input the engineers often have in the design and the construction of the suspension, especially the front suspension, because the front suspension components can be very disruptive to the aerodynamic nature of the car. So the car designer usually gets an awful lot of input into the front suspension. And sometimes that, that influence, that input comes in a way that contradicts the needs of the actual mechanical nature of the car. And one of the things that people have reported on is that Mercedes brought a new anti-dive suspension. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but I think the primary benefit of the new suspension was that one, it probably is a little bit more effective at its core function. But I think that the biggest benefit of the new suspension is that 
it's probably more aerodynamically functional and it's probably more compatible with a lot of the other updates they brought to the upper surfaces of the car. So to, to upgrade the side pods is good, but that has a downstream effect. And I think to optimize or maximize the new side pods, you need to update components of the car farther upstream. And I think updating that front suspension helped it. Now, the thing I wanted to comment on real quickly is this concept of anti-dive. And I think we all know this because if you're driving in your car and you suddenly get on the throttle, the back of the car, especially if you're driving a rear wheel drive, the back of the suspension, the back of the car will squish down. If you get on the brakes hard, all the forces go into the front suspension and the nose dives down. And in a conventional road car, that's fine because we're not driving that hard. In a Formula One car, it's particularly problematic that if you're hard on the brakes going into a corner and you now need to navigate that corner, it's not great that all of those forces are being applied to the front end of the car because it disrupts the balance, it disrupts the floor, it disrupts all of these aerodynamic functions. So the anti-dive is designed to move those forces away from traditional struts or coilovers. So the mechanism, the device within the suspension that compresses under load, it's designed to move that away from that and move it into more static components like control arms and suspension linkages and things like that. So they absorb the, the forces. Now, the benefit of that is by, though, by having those other components absorb the forces, the car stays flat. It's not diving down because the car dives down under load because the coilovers, the springs, the struts, they absorb the force. And when they absorb the force, they compress, which is why the nose of the car dives down. So it's been reported widely and people are talking a lot about anti-dive suspension. And Brake did a really great job. Blake did a really great job of explaining this into a video a couple of days ago, but all F1 front suspensions are anti-dive suspensions. It could just be that the new front suspension has been calibrated in such a way that it increases the forces that press those kind of downward forces into some of the more static suspension components. So again, a couple of things here. One, I think that front suspension is better optimized for aerodynamic functionality. And it was previously anti-dive. All F1 suspensions are anti-dive, but they may have put increased emphasis in distributing that force, distributing that load away from the compression mechanism of the suspension into some of those static members. So very, very cool, but I'm also just incredibly excited about the gains that Mercedes has made over the last couple of weeks. So we got those big upgrades. We got those big upgrades going into Monaco. Of course, Monaco is not a great place to witness whether those upgrades are going to be particularly effective. They look great in Spain. They look great in Canada. And I cannot wait to see what they're going to look like in what they're going to look like in Canada. Now, one other comment that I'll add real quick is earlier you were talking about Sergio Perez, and I just want to kind of slot this in, even if it's out of place a little bit. Sure. Um, Okay. Sergio Perez has looked terrible. He's looked absolutely terrible, but there's no better opportunity for him to get his head right than in the next two Grand Prix. Austria and Silverstone are power circuits. The Red Bull should absolutely stomp the competition there. And this is a great opportunity for him to rebuild his his confidence. But that sliding back to the Mercedes, just sliding back to the Mercedes. Sorry, kind of got off track there. 
Yeah, no, that 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 that's fine. Though where I wanted to take it with the Mercedes is that uh, Total's already said that they're hoping to bring an even bigger upgrade uh, package Incredible. to, uh, to, Incredible. to the B- British Grand Prix. And you know, I thought that uh, some of the comments that I've read and heard from him over the the, the the past several days seems to be very flattering towards. I think what he called it was it a mega update uh, that uh, that that uh, Aston Martin brought to, to Canada. So, I mean, they're they're looking at that team now as an obvious uh, serious player. And then, uh, you know, with the work that they're doing, I'm, I I would love to see those three teams like in a three way battle. I think it would be really, really fun uh, to, to see that uh, the, uh, to see that happening. And then it's interesting, too, because uh, Lewis is also saying that uh, that Mercedes uh, really kind of needs to focus on 2024 to really be uh, challenging or to, to, to match uh, Red Bull. So, you know, maybe they've finally turned that um, evolutionary corner in the uh, the design track that they've had with their car and you know now that they've ditched the zero side pod concept and you know come with all those upgrades that uh, you so nicely explained um you know over the course of the show here mark that, that that maybe they're finally getting back on track maybe they've you know finally unlocked what they needed to do and that uh, development arc and really uh, refine what they can do with the car this year and then with the uh, lewis's comments for next year really you know build on that with the new car for next year and then really take it to yeah i actually end, so. i actually very much disagree with lewis on this one and i know this is just really? a comment it's just a quote um, and obviously, I, I wouldn't want to do anything that would compromise the development of the 2024 car. But I feel that the the gains they're making right now are coming so quickly. It's it's kind of like last year with the W13, the upgrades. It was like a tap dripping, drip, 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 drip. They were getting these tiny upgrades that made that were largely inconsequential to the performance of the car. And at some point earlier this year, they cracked the code. Whatever it was that was disrupting and blocking the rapid development of this car, they figured it out. They unlocked that code. And it's now it's like somebody's turned on the tap and the development is coming so quickly that I would do nothing to compromise that because anything they learn this year, they can carry over to the W15 and they should. So really next year's car, like, yeah, get your chassis ready. Start building on the chassis, start learning from this year's chassis, but continue to develop the suspension and the floor and the aerodynamic features of this car as much as you can, because all of that can carry over. Like you're not committing any resources to, to the, to the power unit. Like that's frozen continue to develop this car as much as you can right up until you hit that cap because all of that's going to spill over. All of that can be carried over to the W15. I just, I think it would be a a horrendous mistake to stop development because it's coming so quickly. And I, I feel like, their designers and their air engineers and their aerodynamicists, like they were hitting a wall for the last year and a half with the W13 and the early iterations of the W14. And I don't know what that wall was. And I hope one day we'll learn, but there was something they couldn't get by and they solved that. They changed that. And now everything else is coming rapid fire. So, so I don't necessarily agree with Lewis, but I also appreciate that again, in a cost cap era, at some point you have to start you have to start positioning your capital towards next year's car or that's going to be underdeveloped. But still, it's an exciting time to be a Mercedes <laughs> fan. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's take another uh, break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to open up the mailbag and go over some uh, messages and emails that we got over the past uh, several days. We'll do that in a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a short break from our sponsors. 
Okay, here we go back again and going to open up the mailbag here. First one comes from a Danger Dan 77 on Twitter. How much substance do you reckon there is to the rumors that Mick is on his way to Williams next season? So currently we have Logan Sargent, the rookie, the American rookie driver, Williams and Alex Albon, who finished seventh at the Canadian Grand Prix uh, this pa- uh, past weekend. I I don't really know. I mean, I, I think that this, um, this kind of rumor is perfect for this time of year because this is typically you know we, we've just had summer solstice here the the first day of summer in the northern hemisphere and that that usually is about the time of year where we see silly season kick off when you know if you're not familiar with silly season that's all the different rumors about which driver is going to go where and who's going to do what for the next uh, season but um, I don't know this is a good one I mean um, you know certainly Mick is in a really really good spot right now you see him every race at the Mercedes drive garage as their reserve driver standing next to Toto looking over the telemetry he's got the headset on doing all that work in the simulator so I mean after two very unremarkable seasons at Haas I mean I know he had he had a couple of you know bright spots uh, here and there but a couple of very difficult uh, you know years to start off his uh, his uh, Formula One career it, it seems kind of odd to say that you know a um, <clears throat> excuse me a reserve driver role and simulator driver role for Mick Schumacher was, you know, a good move for him. But I think it's a good place for for him to be. Mark, what do you think? Is there anything to this yeah, one? Yeah, I don't know where the rumor's coming from. I, I've seen it. It was all over social media on the weekend. And it was probably, it was probably, the genesis was probably the fact that Total Wolf is constantly asked about his intentions for for Mick and whether he'd like to see him in a Formula One car in 24. And of course he would, right? Like Total Wolf had a relationship with his father. I think Mick Schumacher is well regarded within the sport. And you always want to see your reserve driver, your test driver promoted to a full-time racing seat. I think the reason that people keep making that connection to Williams is that while McLaren are a Mercedes customer team, there is certainly no chance that Mercedes would ever have any influence over who was in their car. Like that's that's just not a conversation. And Aston Martin is going to be, I would say, pivoting away from Mercedes at some point in the very near future when they become a Honda Works team. So that's certainly not going to be an opportunity. So I think people make this connection between Williams and between Mercedes because Mercedes supplies Williams with power units. And that may be because Williams is seemingly this underperforming, underfunded team that Mercedes could apply some degree of pressure or influence in helping them make a decision regarding their driver. But right now they have Logan Sargent driving next to Alex Albon. Alex Albon is currently P12 in the driver standings and Logan Sargent as a rookie is P20, but they are still only separated by seven points. Um, but that said, Logan's a rookie and he struggled, but he also has a pretty mediocre car. What I would be excited to see is how he continues to grow through the balance of the calendar, especially when he starts to get some of the upgrades that Alex Albon has enjoyed already. And we talked on Sunday about the fact that, hey, that new Williams car has a new floor, revised geometry. Um, it has a new engine cover and it's new halo fairing. It has a ton of juicy upgrades, which obviously were a big part of Alex Albon scoring a P7 finish. And although he was spectacular, but I think it's only fair that Logan Sargent gets a shake of of those upgrade in those parts as well. But I think if Alex Albon continues to score points finishes this year, that maybe there is a conversation about Logan Sargent and whether he's going to get invited back to be part of the Williams team next year. And if he's not, Mick would be maybe possibly a good fit. But again, I don't know how much, I don't know how much influence total Wolf has over whether he gets a seat at Williams or not. 
Yeah, I mean, considering that they brought in Alex Albon last year, who was the then Red like Bull, a Red Bull the driver. Red Bull driver, yeah. yeah, that that was a very very you know brave call from a, a customer team, Williams Mercedes customer does have team, James right? Voles, right? So there is at least from an True. executive perspective, there's some linkages and some relationships, and people talk up yep. and down the paddock, yep. and I, I hear this all the time that really is James Voles with Williams because they're giving him his reps so he can assume a greater role with with the Mercedes AMG Formula One team at some point. But but I don't know. It'll be interesting. But ultimately, if Logan Sargent continues to score P18s, P19s, and P20s throughout the balance of the schedule, then I think Williams mm. would have to look hard and seriously about whether they want to bring him back. Although his retirement at Canada was certainly not his fault. That was a mechanical issue, and it was unfortunate that he wasn't yeah. able to finish in front of the crowd in Montreal. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, uh, next one comes from at the Jess Fraser. Um, the message is: uh, Mark Hamilton did a great job of holding it down solo for the Canada GP podcast for the summer break. I wanted to request a history of Major League Soccer, talking about how it all works and the oddities that are in it. And uh, as it will be blowing up with Messi, I want to hear about goalie wars, the goalie pool, transfer windows, designated players, IFAB versus FIFA, the big deals like Beckham, Messi. Just a thought. So. This one, obviously, I think is aimed at me, and that's uh, that's fair play. And when I saw that one, I know the perfect person to come on the uh, the, the show to talk about that. So during the summer break, we'll, we'll throw a, an extra bonus sode in there uh, to do I'm just gonna uh, that. I'm going to hold you accountable because, because I want to listen to that yeah, episode. Yeah, please do. I am yeah, going yeah. to continue to pester you about that. So Jess Frazier, I will make sure Daily Deliver is a history yep. of Major League Soccer podcast during the summer break. No, I'm I'm going to reach out to a friend of mine uh, tonight, um, and I and I know I think we'll have to do this ahead of time because uh, he's been living in the Middle East for the past several years because yeah uh, he was uh, in Qatar for the for the World Cup working working there and he's due to come back to to Canada at the uh, end of uh, you know in and around summer break time so I think I'll have to do this sooner rather than later before things get packed away so I think that's a great one so we'll definitely look in that so cool thank you for that uh, for that one Jess okay the next one is uh, from Dave in uh, North Carolina. Uh, the message is, I'm a recent F1 fan and enjoy your podcast. Your podcast and Formula Y are the two F1 podcasts I listen to regularly. Both are great to have for both of us new to F1. I watched the Spanish Grand Prix and saw where they took out the chicane at turns 14 and 15 and made those corners high-speed corners. I also watched Monte Carlo this year and the lack of passing areas is problematic to good racing. In sector two, there are turns 10 and 11. Do you know if there ever was any thought given uh, in the past to making this section long straightaway similar to what it was done at the Spanish Green uh, Grand Prix? Uh, this potentially would create another DRS zone, increasing the number of overtakes in the race. Uh, this change would add more excitement to what is more often than not a single file parade behind whoever won qualifying on Saturday. Just wondering your thoughts on this. You know, thank you for that, Dave. That's uh, a very good uh, email and a good question to talk about. So, Mark, I don't have the track layout of Monte Carlo in front of me. Are turns 10 and 11 the turns out of the tunnel at the end there? Yeah, so... I, I think I can answer this question. And hey, Dave, shout out. Thank you so much for reaching out and giving us uh, giving us your time. It means a, a lot to both of us. I, I think, I, I, and I totally get what you're saying that, hey, can we create something like we see in Hungary, which is nece not necessarily a great track for overtaking, but there's a long straight that enables people to overtake the car in front of them uh, because it's a DRS zone and you can get them right before the corner. And I think what you're speaking to here is you come through turn eight, turn nine, and you would wipe out, you would eliminate 10 and 11, which is that chicane. So from turn nine through turn, well, I guess 
it would become turn 10, but it would create this longer straightaway. And if that was aligned or overlapped with a DRS zone, you could create this opportunity where cars could power down this newly formed straight and pass somebody before they turn into what would be the newly defined turn 10, which is currently turn 12. I think I think one of the reasons that the current chicane is there is not necessarily because it's a really cool racing feature, but I think it's a mechanism to dampen the speed of the cars because I think when you look at the infrastructure surrounding the track at that point, I think they're trying to intentionally limit the speed at which the cars can accelerate too, simply because it's unsafe for them to travel any farther. Because again, I think if you hit into 10, turn 10, and I, I'd have to bring up a simulator and some data, but I, I, I honestly feel like, like, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And I think if this was a traditional circuit with lots of runoff and a sand trap and really great barriers, I think that what you're suggesting would be beautiful. But I think that chicane there is specifically to dampen the speed of the cars because any faster, it would be simply unsafe. Yeah, that that's it, hundred percent, Mark. I'm looking at at the track plan now. So, if you look at uh, turns uh, seven and, and eight, where they go, you know, so that's uh, Mirabeau and uh, Portier, and then then from turn eight they go into the tunnel, and then turns in eleven at the uh, you know, like you say, the Nouvelle Chicane. So, I mean, that roughly takes up, I would say pretty close to a third of the length of the of the lap there so what happens is if they remove that uh, that 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 chicane it turns 10 and 11 then they're going to be bringing like you say a lot of speed down there into into tobacco which is a uh, turn 12 and then they're going to go around the swiss swimming pool turns 13 14 and 15 and 16 so they'd bring you know they'd come barreling down through there and then they'd have to bleed off a lot of speed to throw it into that left hander to back and like you say i mean i mean there's there's nowhere that they can they, they could put adequate runoff areas you know they, they've got the barriers there and not to mention that uh, just going through that uh, complex of turns after tobacco, then going around the swimming pool, it's it's pretty tight and narrow there. And I mean, that that's the part of the track where we typically see drivers hit the uh, the Armco barriers, and that's where we saw Mick have that big crash. Was it was it last year, or the year before, where he basically broke the back end off of his uh, his Haas? So you know, it just it, it, it's a safety thing. But I mean, from from a racing point of view, if they could do it. Absolutely, would it make uh, make make sense to do so? Unfortunately, just the uh, you know the the issues that we have just with the the confined nature of uh, Monaco itself just doesn't make it uh, safe or practical uh, to do so. I don't know if you remember, but way back in the day, Mark, I, I don't know if you remember a, a German driver. I think he was German uh, by the name of Carl Wendlinger. He used to drive for for Sauber. He actually had a big crash in the wet coming out of uh, the the tunnel there, actually into turns uh, ten and eleven. And he was uh, quite uh, quite badly injured at the time. I, you know, he did you know, recover and come back, but uh, that I, I I I seem to remember that would probably would have been like mid nineties. I mean, that's that's going back twenty five years at least. So, anyways, well, thank you for uh, those emails, uh, everyone. So let's um, let's uh, dive back into the show outline itself. So the next one, we're going to go back to Red Bull because they always seem to get a lot of uh, real estate and time on this uh, show. Anyways, uh, this one comes from uh, autosport.com. 
Um, it was written by Matt Q, and it's a, a new e countdown to F1 retirement has realistically started. Uh, <laughs> but you know, having you know said that, the the byline it says Adrian Newey says the countdown to his re- retirement has realistically begun, but he aims to continue until he no longer is wanted or enjoys working. So uh, there, there, there you go. So. He's 64 years old. So, you know, the, the picture that he's put in here doesn't look entirely flattering because, you know, he looks about 164 years old in that picture. But I mean, what a career that Adrian Newey has had in, in you know, in, in Formula One. I mean, it's absolutely uh, incredible. Some of the cars that uh, he's uh, designed for Red Bull, McLaren, Williams, um, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it, it would be sad to see you know someone of his talent you know leave formula one but you know sadly all things come to an end if uh, anybody's you know earned a good retirement it would be uh adrian newey you, your thoughts you Mark? just have to hope that red bull and i i think i have a tremendous amount of respect for him and his commitment to the red bull organization i mean this is a guy that could go to any team for any amount of money that he wanted but i think he's committed to the red bull project and the the milton Keynes team which is awesome i just think if i'm red bull the best possible thing i can be doing for the future of our team is surrounding him with great young designers and great young brains that can absorb as much as they possibly can from him so that in his absence they can carry on his work and he can build a runway from which they can continue to to nurture and, and fertilize for the years to come. But but yeah, obviously at 64 years old, it's going to come at some point, but there's no reason to think he might not still be here for 10 years, especially if this team is successful and he's energized and and he feels good about what he's contributing. Yeah, I think that would be the big factor. I mean, like you say, I mean, Adrian could walk into any team in Formula One or anywhere literally right and and basically name <laughs> name the amount of money the that that he want to to go work for that organization but i think that he's at the the, the point in his career that I think that as long as he's, you know, as long as he's in, he's in good health and he's enjoying what he's doing, I think he's going to continue to do it for for a while yet. But you know, sometimes uh, priorities uh, change in life, so who knows uh, whether or not uh, he'll stick around for another ten or fifteen years? I mean, stranger things have happened, but uh, certainly a brilliant, brilliant mind. And could you imagine being one of those lucky, fortunate people to learn from from Adrian Newey? If that is uh, the career that uh, that you embark upon, okay. Next story, and this is one that we we've talked about quite a bit, and ties in nicely to your announcement at the beginning of the show that um, Formula One Academy driver Megan Gilks will be uh, back on the show here over the summer. And uh, this is from the uh, the, the race dot com, and uh, this is a um, it's entitled Dominicali. So that's a uh, Formula One CEO Stefano Dominicali. Sorry, Dominicali can't see a Formula One or sorry a female driver in. in F1 in the next five years saying that it is very unlikely. I think it's an interesting quote from uh, Domenicali, Mark, but I think that we had a pretty good discussion about this topic either last week or the week before when we saw some, we were discussing some of the comments made by uh, Susie Wolf and just, um, I don't want to call them, ob- well, I guess maybe they are obstacles, but uh, you know the, the fact that there still isn't a clear and open pathway to Formula One for female drivers and still the lack of opportunities and just, you know, building that, you know, that, that uh, grassroots foundation and just having, you know, somewhere for female drivers to go. So I, I don't think there's anything, you know, really surprising in Domenicali's uh, um, comments, but, you know. 
hopefully one day it changes. So we'll wait and see. Okay, so sticking with Stefano Domenicali, so apparently 24 Formula One uh, races um, still might be on the cards for next year, which uh, he believes to be uh, what he calls a requirement in uh, the current market. Um, you know, I think that's uh, an interesting kind of uh, way to, to term it. Um he said uh, recently on Formula 1's Beyond the Grid uh, podcast, quote, what we want to do next year is 24, and I think 24 is the right number. It's the number that is required within the market. I would say it's the right balance between that, the complexity of the logistics, and of what uh, that people are working. I would say that this is the number which should be the target to be stable for a long time, end quote. So, you know, that's, uh, that, that's interesting that uh, he should say that. We've always kind of wondered, you know, you know, especially we've talked about it quite a bit, Mark, over the years that, you know, as, as we've seen the calendar kind of like incrementally and very slowly expand over the last number of years, where that kind of like sweet spot is or was. And it's interesting because this is the first time that I've, I, I think, at least in my mind, that I've, that, that I've heard Domenicali actually say, like state a number because, you know, I mean, they've thrown the number 30 out there. We've heard 26, you know, we've heard all a number, but it, it always to me seemed like that was more like, you know, like I would say wishful thinking more like in an, in a, in a perfect world, in an ideal world, we'd like to have 26 or 30 or whatever it is. But it's, 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 it's interesting to me that he's actually really come down and said 24 is the ideal number. Yeah, logistically, I think it makes sense. And it's probably based on feedback from from the traveling parties and the teams. But that said, as much as it's ah, 24 is a lot of races, man, especially when you pack in six sprint weekends as well, it's it's asking a lot of your fans. But ultimately, I don't know that they're concerned if people don't tune in for every single Grand Prix, because I think at the end of the day, Stefano Domenicali is responsible to the shareholders of Liberty and you show value to the shareholders of Liberty by increasing revenues. And if you're responsible for the teams as well, who are the backbone of the championship, you want to show them as much potential value for participating as possible. So you add as many races as you can, which is stuff we've talked about before. Um, I I feel good that maybe that's purely as a spectator. Like I would feel good knowing that, hey, 25, 24, 25 might be the ceiling. But as much as we hear him here talking about 24, we've also heard him openly talk about maybe 30 races and the fact that they logistically believe they could do it. And we know for a fact there are cities, states, provinces, countries that are willing to buck up 40 or $50 million a year for a Grand Prix. So, so we'll see. But uh, I think part of this might might be a little bit of posturing, especially with the Concord negotiations in, in flight currently. But I would be very surprised if the next Concord agreement didn't make allowances for a 26, 27, 28 race championship, because I don't think they want to hem in and commit to a 24 race calendar for any period of time if they believe that they could find a way to get more races on the calendar. Now, we haven't had a 24 race calendar calendar before. So next year, I think with the addition of China coming back for the first time since 2019, um, I think we should be there. But again, let's let's see what a 24 race calendar feels like for everybody involved before we commit to anything longer than that, especially as we don't have a lot of regionalization to the calendar yet. Yeah, I know. There, there, sometimes there's that little bit of disconnect where we're still like kind of jumping around between different uh, geographic uh, regions um, in, in the world. So that's interesting. You should uh, bring that up. But you know, 
we're going to stick with Stefano Domenicali because apparently he is, um, you know, the, the the person that's thrown a bunch of uh, juicy comments out there this week. And the next uh, story comes from uh, Racer.com, uh, written by Chris Medland uh, and his uh, Domenicali on F1 expansion. Ten teams are more than enough. And um, the, the article goes on to say, and I'll quote from uh, part of it, and uh, Stefano Domenicali said, quote, ten teams are more than enough for the sport to be successful and personally doesn't want to expand beyond 20 cars on the grid. Anyways, um, Domenicali had the following to say, quote, uh, this is a very interesting situation. What is the right number of teams? Because there are different positions and there are also legal implications to what we have to say. Um uh, uh, pardon me. Uh, I think, to be honest, if the real value that it is bringing to the sport, it is important and real and stable for the future. There is also the consideration that you have to take. If the contest is growing, which we can is what we can see today, I think ten teams are more than enough to create the show or the business and the attention that we want to see on the track. There is an evolution going on today that involves the FIA and us to make the right call for the future. This is something that also can connect to the future discussion that will happen with the renewal of the Concord Agreement that we need to remember is expiring in 2025, so we still have a long time to go. But it's an evaluation that we need to take considering in this period of time where in the past there were teams that were coming in, getting out with zero value. Now the teams are very stable, very profitable, and very strong in terms of technical capability to be competitive on the track. Therefore, the right answer is that in the next months, it will be a very important port point of discussion that we need to tackle that is do we need to stay with 10 do we need to have more teams or can we give the exemption to a future possible team to really be very very strong that can join f1 this is all a topic that will be a part of discussion for the future end quote so this was um, what uh, domenicali said uh, on also on the uh, the beyond the grid uh, podcast so definitely some very interesting quotes and uh, interesting things that uh, that 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 he said on that show because you know we we've all almost taken it for granted mark that that this you know potential to add another one or two teams to the grid seems to at least from my point of view it kind of to me feels like an accepted thing that that everyone wants so for the for like the ceo of uh, formula one to come out and say no i'm good with 10 i think uh, 10 is the perfect number is uh you know very very surprising at this point considering that they just closed that door for the expressions of interest what was it like two three weeks ago it was very very recently here's the way i see it i feel that the fia has probably shared with liberty the commercial rights holder that there might be one maybe two very good candidates and i think the reaction of formula one is Again, we hemmed ourselves in with that $200 million anti-dilution fee. We don't want to honor that. And not that they're obligated to do so, but I think that they're trying to get some negotiating leverage back by downplaying any potential need that they have for a team. Look, we're totally cool with 10, but if you want to join, here's the price tag. Because I think if Stefano Domenicali is too publicly... um, open to the concept, I think that dampens their negotiating capabilities with those potential candidates. And I think he's probably just trying to downplay it. And again, I think it probably also spills into the new Concord Agreement. And I think that Liberty is probably just as happy to revisit this topic in five years when the 
when the new Concord agreement is active than he is now. But I have a feeling that there's probably one candidate, and we all know who it is. It's Andretti Motorsport. I, I think that their bid, their application probably looks pretty good. And I think the FIA are going to come forward and make a recommendation to the commercial rights holder that they'd like to add this team. And I think that at that point, Formula One won't be able to out of hand dismiss it, but I think they'll probably enter into some sort of negotiations on what the price would be and what the timetable would be. It certainly wouldn't be 24 or 25, it would probably be 26. Um, Or alternatively, they'll say, yeah, we agree. This is a great application, but let's revisit this when the new Concord agreement is in flight. So we'll see. Yeah. Which he, you know, you know, mentioned right out that you know isn't due for renewal for for a couple of a uh, couple of years. So it almost seemed like he was content. At least the way that uh, I read those comments was that he seems to content to kind of kick this issue down the the the, the road a little bit. Even though, uh, you know, they they do to have to have some sort of um, you know discussions around it. It, it to, to me, it didn't really feel like he has a real sort of sense of urgency, or maybe didn't communicate it that this is something that needs uh, to be done anytime soon. So we'll wait. And see what happens okay a um, couple more uh, notes or little stories here before we uh, we close it down so um, the Formula One teams have reached a, a bit of a milestone where all of them all 10 teams have um, achieved a three-star uh, environmental accreditation with the FIA so you know this is uh, an interesting one here because uh, you know Formula One is targeted to, to become net zero net carbon zero by uh, 2030 and this is a target that's been embraced by all the stakeholders from teams manufacturers promoters partners and everything like that so the uh, the environmental accreditation program was launched by the FIA back in 2011 to help the sport or the the, the motorsport industry in general assess enhance uh, and enhance their environmental performance and they have a, a performance across a range of 17 criteria that they measure this ranges from energy use to supply chain management transport planning noise management carbon emissions and 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 so on so it's uh, you know actually uh, you know, I think it's uh, pretty uh, impressive that uh, all 10 teams now have, uh, you know, marked up uh, a three-star uh, accreditation with the FIA on the uh, the environmental front there. So that's pretty cool to see. So one more story, then while we talk about this one, I'm going to boot up the, uh, the the music here for, for MotoGP quarter mark. And Danny Ricardo says he wants a fairy tale return to Red Bull. And this is from Nate Saunders over at ESPN.com. And so he said uh, for the, you know, and uh, the, the first uh, paragraph here, I'll just read from Nate's article, says Danny Ricardo is admitted for the first time during a sabbatical year that the, the dream to end his Formula One career would be a return to race for the Red Bull team. Ricardo is currently Red Bull's third driver, serving as a backup to Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez following a tough spell with McLaren. The Australian, who won eight races for Red Bull between 2014 and 2018, wants to return to the Formula One grid next year with a competitive team. A route back to Red Bull looks unlikely currently with Perez under contract till the end of 2024. Ricardo suggested he's considering how else he might get back into the uh, team, which uses junior outfit Alpha Tauri to run other drivers it has under contract. Quote, this for me would be like a fairy tale. Honestly, the fairy tale ending would be to finish my career here if I could have had it my own way. Quote, end quote, Ricardo told ESPN about racing back at Red Bull in the future. Uh, but we'll see. I'll probably have to work my way up a little bit, but it's really nice to be back here. End quote. 
ESPN understands that Ricardo is open to the the prospect of racing at Alpha Tauri in 2024, as it would likely put him back on the radar for another step up to the senior team, but has no desire to do so this year. Sources told ESPN last month that reports suggesting he would replace the out-of-form Nick DeFries this season were wide of the mark, with Ricardo enjoying his time away from the day-to-day of F1. Ricardo has impressed Red Bull with the simulator work since returning to the team with Christian uh, team boss Christian Horner saying that he felt the Australian has got his mojo back after his struggles with McLaren. And it kind of goes on a little bit uh, longer just to uh, talk about the, uh, you know, the <laughs> the uh, cringy, uh, uh, you know, Manning cast moment he had with the Will or not uh, this past weekend. But Mark, I don't know. I, I don't think it's as far-fetched as, you know, it possibly could be. We, we see at the moment uh, two drivers within the broader Red Bull organization that aren't really driving all that great. Yeah, you know, Nick DeFries, he's not a rookie. He's what, 27, 28? I expected a lot more from DeFries to, to, to be quite honest. I, I mean, I know he's getting to know, you know, learn the car and things like that, but I, I feel like he's really struggled over the, you know, the first number, you know, the, the races that we've had uh, this year through the first seven, eight, nine races, whatever we've done so far. And then you look at uh, Sergio Perez. I mean, he's really struggling now. And I know that uh, he's probably getting a fairly big paycheck, but he's not uh, delivering the results that he needs to. And we just know just in general that Red Bull do not have any you know reservations about shaking things up and moving a driver and booting them out of a seat if they have to. I mean, you know, go back to 2016. I mean, that's how Max got into a Red Bull. And of course, obviously that worked out great, but he's only one driver that uh, has been, uh, you know, the part of musical chairs during the middle of a season. So I would say that, you know, d- don't poo-poo this one or, you know, dismiss it because, you know, something good happened. Yeah, I totally agree with your comment on Nick DeVries. I just, I don't think he has the same leash that a conventional rookie would have, right? Like your traditional rookie is, 19, 20, 21, and they're coming out of Formula 2 fresh off a championship, and you expect them to make some mistakes and learn the tracks and learn the car and the chassis and the tires. You know, Nick DeVries doesn't doesn't get that leash. He's on the wrong side of 25. Like you said, he's almost 30. He won an F2 championship years ago. He won a Formula E championship seemingly years ago. He's been around Formula One, although not in a driving capacity for years. Like I, I would have expected significantly more from him. And I think the expectations coming to this year was that, you know, he was going to run circles around Yuki and Yuki has effectively, and although I think Yuki has two points finishes, two P10s this year, I think Yuki has extracted everything he conceivably could from that really terrible Alpha Tauri and Nick DeVries just hasn't delivered. So will there be a mid-season driver swap like we saw with Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly and like we saw with Max Verstappen in 2016? Maybe, probably not, but it's just awfully convenient that Red Bull has a team in Alpha Tauri that they could use to to get Daniel Ricciardo another look at the Formula One circuit. I think I think it would be a huge risk to swap to swap Daniel Ricciardo with Sergio Perez. But whether it's mid season or at the end of the season, yeah, like 
I think they would love to have Daniel Ricardo in an Alpha Tauri. And it's just, it's nice to hear Daniel say flowery things about Red Bull because I don't think any of us were happy with the way that relationship ended at the end of 2018. And of course, I think the writing was on the wall when Max and Daniel Ricardo came together in Baku that year. But I think we all would have liked to have mm-hmm. seen that story play out in a different way. And I think it would be just romantic and nice if somehow he could finish his career driving a Red Bull car, whether it's an Alpha Tauri or a Red Bull. Like, I don't think any of us want to see his last time in a Formula One car be that last appearance in a McLaren. Like, I think we all want to see him have a shot at redemption. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, um, you know, I, I would not, like I say, I would just dis- not dismiss the story out of hand uh, because <laughs> just knowing the history that Red Bull has and their their willingness to, to move drivers a- around, I would say at the at the at the at the drop of the hat, but certainly the tolerance there seems to be shorter as uh, you know compared to uh, many many other teams. Anyways, I'm gonna fire up the music here. Hey, there we Moto GP quarter, my yeah, friend. Yeah, baby, I'm super excited to talk about the Moto GP. So, quick update. So we are now one, two, three, four, five, six, seven races into the 2023 championship. The constructors championship currently looks like this. Ducati is on top with 250 points, followed by KDM with 135. Aprilia sits on 99. Honda sits on 81, and I'm going to circle back to Honda in a minute. And Yamaha, very disappointing, 68 points. Of course, MotoGP is interesting because they have a Riders' Championship, they have a Constructors' Championship, and they have a Team Championship. And of course, in Formula 1, the Team Championship in MotoGP would be the equivalent of the F1 Constructors' Championship. But in MotoGP, it's kind of cool because they pool all the points from the actual constructors into the constructors championship so if there was an f1 equivalent the points scored by aston martin mclaren williams and mercedes would count towards mercedes in the constructors championship of course they don't do it that way in formula one but they do it that way in MotoGP. so ducati is absolutely running away with the championship no surprise at all the prima premac racing team which is of course powered by the uh, Ducati power units currently sits number one in the team championships. Very impressively, the Mooney VR46 racing team. So this is Valentino Rossi's for a MotoGP team. So the team that he owns and operates, they are currently number two in the championship, despite the fact that this is just their second year competing at the highest level of Grand Prix motorcycle racing. So that is very, very cool to see. What is very disappointing though, is that the factory Honda team Repsol Honda, the factory Honda team, the team that dominated for so much of the last decade, they currently sit number 11 in the team standing. So they're currently sitting number five, or sorry, currently sitting number four in the Constructors Championship. They are dead last in the team standings. Currently this year, Valentino Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez had a retirement in Portugal. He sat out three races because of an injury. He had a retirement in France. He had a retirement in Italy, and he crashed Five times this past weekend at the Saxon ring, five times. And the final crash was so bad that despite the fact that he was medically cleared to start the Grand Prix, he threw up his hands and said, I'm not starting. And ultimately, Honda's biggest struggle seemed to be the bike itself. So not necessarily the engine, but the chassis has been an absolute 
nightmare for them. So bad though, that Honda actually contracted a German manufacturer to build a new chassis for them. Like the, the F1 equivalent would be, you know, Mercedes throwing up their hands and saying, we can't develop our own chassis. We're going to go to this bespoke manufacturer to build us a custom chassis because we can't get it right. So they incorporated that new chassis, that new swing arm onto their bike a couple of races ago, and it has made seemingly no difference. So bad has the Honda luck been that at the Saxon ring at the German race this past weekend, Honda had just one rider starting. They had one rider. So LCR's Takaki Nakagami, he was left, and I am reading here from the race, he admitted that he was left scared after Mark Marquez's fifth and weekend ending crash at the Saxon ring because he's effectively riding a very comparable, very similar bike. But the Honda riders are up in arms. They're terrified of the chassis, is incredibly scary. And if somebody like Mark Marquez, who has six world championships in MotoGP to his name, cannot get his head wrapped around this bike, that's a real problem. And again, the difference with MotoGP than than, than Formula One is that a crash in, in Formula One can sometimes be, hey, you know what? I, I came into a wall and I broke my rear suspension. And it doesn't feel good when that happens, but I walk away from it unscathed. When you crash on a bike, especially when it's a high side, you are flying. And sometimes you're sliding across the tarmac and gravel for hundreds of feet before you come to a stop. And if you look at these crashes, he's tumbling, he's flipping, he's falling. He is physically getting beaten up by this bike. And I think the rumors of him potentially looking for an exit from Honda at this point are absolutely at a fever pitch. And I think there's some other teams on the grid that would be very, very excited about potentially ex um, inviting into their organization. But again, from a constructor's perspective, Ducati, KDM, Aprilia, Honda, Yamaha. And from a team perspective, it's Prima Premac Racing, Mooney VR46, Dakota, Ducati Lenovo, Red Bull KTM, Aprilia, Monster Energy, which of course is the team that, uh, Valentino Rossi had so much success with um, racing MotoGP, LCR Honda, Gas Gas Factory, Racing Tech 3, Crypto Data, RNF MotoGP team. And finally, like I said, the factory Repsol Honda team currently sitting number 11 in the championship on just 20 points. And their best finish this year was a P11. So not a great year for that team. Yeah, that's shocking. I mean, to hear that, uh, you know, he had five very big crashes at the Saxon ring last weekend, th that that's shocking. But like you say, I mean, if, if he was able to extricate himself from Honda, I mean, I'm sure people would be falling over themselves to get Mark Marquez into their team riding one of their bikes, uh, you know, for, for that. I mean, he, he's a proven winner, right? I mean, like six world championships. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a deal that almost does itself. Anyways, Mark, I think that's a good place to to wrap it up uh, for tonight. Um, I'm going to steal your little bit here and uh, just remind everyone that uh, you know if you enjoy listening to the podcast, you know please head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you enjoy your podcast. Leave us a five star rating and, and review, or whatever you think uh, is worthy of uh, what we do here each and every week. And we certainly appreciate the feedback we get from you guys. It helps us, you know, tighten up the show and add in whatever we need to to do to make it the best that we. We possibly can with the resources that we have and we appreciate uh, all of those and then also if you want to get in touch by all by all means uh, do so you can send us a tweet on uh, the twitter obviously at scootery f1 pod at G and also you can send us an email at scootery f1 pod at gmail.com and that's it that's a wrap thank you one and all for listening and thank you for those who uh, reached out send us a message this week have a great weekend and we'll talk to you again very very soon 
by Friedel.